On this episode of We're No Damn Experts, Rebecca and Madi have two guests on the podcast to talk about the restoration of Charlie Russell's house and studio. Best damn podcast, the best damn town. You want to get up, get ready to get down. Welcome to the greatest damn town in Montana, Great Falls. I'm Rebecca Ingham. And I'm Maricela Hazard. And we're no damn experts. And today we've got a lot going on. Maddie's back in the office, so we're recording. Yes. She got an amazing Christmas gift. I have a new stand with my microphone, my new microphone stand. I guess that's what it's called in today's day and age. So if I sound better than everyone else, it's because of this gorgeous piece of equipment in front of me. And we have guests in the studio. Our first guest condones plagiarism and is the marketing director for the CM Russell Museum, Christina Horton, who has allowed us to copy the Buffalo Hunt book onto our website. Word for word guys are going to get me in trouble. <laughs> That's our goal in life. And and with Christina, we have a piece of history. <laughs> I'm just going to say this guest is likely coming back to the podcast if today goes well. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. This guest has had his hand in a variety of great projects in our community, including the one we're going to talk about today. And it's my first time meeting him, but I've known his family for a long time. Please welcome to the podcast, Ken Sievert. Thank you. Oh, yes. Thanks. That's the <laughs> first That's test. First test. You know, our, our <laughs> listeners are true and faithful know that we joke around because some people don't know when to talk, Ken. <laughs> but you did. And so today, what are we going to talk about? Dead yeah, silence. that's you. <laughs> well, well, the the premise that uh, you You're asked l- me to speak about was uh, the restoration of Charlie and Nancy's house at the Russell Museum complex. That is correct. That is what we lured you here under the pretenses of. So I'm super excited. And the way this conversation started, and then the email to Christina happened, was. We were talking about the wallpaper. Well, we were talking about it in a podcast, and Rebecca does the hand signal one moment and then writes down during the episode <laughs> wallpaper. I'm like, she's distracted. And then afterwards, she's like, we have to do an episode about the wallpaper in Charlie's house. So, which then morphed into the whole restoration. So, tell us how the restoration plan started. When it when it when it started. When did you start planning this? It began in 2014, and the then-director, Michael DeShaman, talked to the State Historic Preservation Office about restoring the house and the studio. They were done jointly. Okay. And uh, Shippo recommended me, and so I got a phone call from Michael, and off we went. Um, had you done projects like this in the past? Yeah, how do you get a recommendation? Right. <laughs> oh, oh, he's I've, your guy. <laughs> I've been involved in uh, 
historic preservation and historic architecture for a very long time and done a lot of work in Yellowstone. Uh, my current project is the I.G. Baker Adobe House in Fort Benton. Oh. And um, anyway, I, I have a long list of of uh, projects on my... Are you in any Hall of Fame? Is there any... No. Like, yeah, we should no. get that out of... <laughs> no. Okay. No. We had a fishing Hall of Fame person on our podcast. Never mentioned he was part of a Hall of Fame anywhere. And we had to find it out after the podcast ended. So now it's a standard question. Yeah. Are you in any halls of fame? Not in any halls of fame. We, I have received two governor's awards. Oh, these are the things we want to know. <laughs> and, a, and a lifetime achievement award from the Montana Preservation Alliance. Wow. Which, which says more about my age than my, <laughs> than my credentials. No, no, I think that says a lot about what you've done. <laughs> no, we want to know your credentials. So you may not be in the hall of fame, but a building you restored could be a... Hall, <laughs> but it's famed. Yeah. That's a pun. Um, That's a pretty, pretty good one. <laughs> so you're called onto the project in 2014. They recommend you. Do you just start, you know, dusting off things right away, or what do you? How do you approach the project? It's, uh, it's a process. Um, the first thing that you do is create what is known in my business as a historic structure report, and. Essentially what that is is gathering as much information as you can about the building. And you do that so that you can make considered decisions later. And the thing that's essential about the two Russell properties is the fact that they, they're not just historic. They are national landmarks. Oh, and there are not that many national landmarks in Montana. Uh, this one is unique. It's a category that's not even used anymore. Uh, but the theme, the theme for it is art. Oh, art. So when the original uh, historians, researchers wrote the historic nomination uh, for the Russell House and Studio, they did it as, a, as an art piece of art like a work of art as a work of art huh. but the thing that's important is they realized that charlie russell had a national reputation you have to have some national connection before um, you reach that landmark status and there's four four national landmarks in our area uh, can you can you uh, can you name them? This is a test, Mike. <laughs> no, I'm listening. I'm sorry. I'm not on the podcast I right now. I'm like, okay, let's find out the four. Charlie for, Russell's house and studio. Yep. Uh, first people's <laughs> buffalo jump. Yes. Okay, I knew that one. Um, so I have an edge here, but I didn't pay enough attention. Let me, listeners, just briefly interrupt. <laughs> Ellen Sievert, uh, Ken's wife, was here and told me exactly. <laughs> what the four were and then i didn't pay any attention well, lewis I... lewis and clark portage okay and the fourth but, well what about it like just where? that it happened but that's the landmark like what point do i look at if uh, i reference it, for directions like it covers a lot of acreage oh the portage does and it starts at the base camp and ends up at white bear island south of town Oh, I thought so it was it's the like whole a whole portage. Yeah, it's like, the entire portage. 
Because you use landmarks for direction, like hook a right at the studio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turn a left after the portage. Okay, what's next? Well, Fort Benton. Oh, the town. Oh. Yeah. Montana's birthplace. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, those are the four that are in our immediate area. The most recent is First, Pe- First People's Buffalo Jump. Yeah. So I knew that one. Okay. I, I do remember seeing that on Billboard. So he gets this national reputation. Which I'm sure we'll have one day, and yeah. then become a we can become landmarks. <laughs> <laughs> Christina's shaking her head. No, that's not possible. So you get as much information as you can as possible. And Christina, if I remember correctly, you've been with the Russell um, seven, eight years. Sure. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. So how involved were you with Ken for the project? So when I got your email asking if we could do this podcast, I immediately said, well, I'm not qualified, so um, (laughs) let's call Ken. And I'm actually just along, to be 100% honest, I don't need to be here. I wanted to hear what Ken had to say. Firsthand. Because anytime I, sometimes he has come and talked to staff. I've seen him give presentations to the Historic Society, other groups, and I'm always fascinated with what he has to say. And so I was like. Well, I get a front row seat. Yes, yes. I'm coming. That's what so, just happened when he was asking. I was listening. So yeah, we're yep. back to podcast time. So. <laughs> yes. So um, feel free to just co-host with us today, Christina. Yeah, I'm, I'm ask questions. Not going to talk much. Um, so no, I was very peripherally involved. I I don't work in our curatorial team. I don't work on our facility side. So you don't think there was a marketing um, opportunity to be had? <laughs> no. Well, the reason. Okay. So I think, and I don't want to take credit, but I think you guys are so aware of the wallpaper because I'm obsessed with the wallpaper in the house. And yes, anytime, and you told. Yes. Anytime I take someone in because uh, I'm obsessed with it because I told I, everyone in the museum has just a standing order from me that if they are doing something super cool there to come tell me so I can take notes, take picture, take video, whatever. And so I happened to get the call that our um, the wallpaper specialist would be outside wetting down the wallpaper when, with a scalpel, like piece by piece, taking the layers away. So I went and got some video of that, of him doing that. And when he got down to the base layer, which I'm sure Ken is going to talk about, I was there to like see the like reveal of, and it see, was so cool. cool. You um, did you take the original video that I, went viral? Yes, that shaky-handed video. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. Yeah. I can't, can't wait. wait to, can't wait to resurface that. Her shaky hand has not left her. <laughs> She's taking some other videos for us. <laughs> that That is indeed the way we started with the wallpaper. I, I do have to add to my last comment that uh, part of a historic structures report has to have the first chapter has to be history. Second chapter has to be the significance of the history. So it's documented and it's following a thread. Um, so is this is this in part this report to determine what has to stay and what what you might get some creative freedom with in in restoring the structure? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, there's limited creative freedom. <laughs> Dang it. When you're when you're dealing with a landmark, I mean the the uh, the goal that we set for ourselves after having created the two reports was that we wanted to take the house back as closely as we could to its 1900 appearance. Okay. 
and I'll comment on that a little later. And then in the case of the studio, uh, which was built in 1903 and very much enlarged in 1911, and then later had the wing added onto in 1926. Um, the goal was to take it back to its um, 1926 appearance. Okay. So those those were the so, those were the sideboards of what we thought we were going to try to achieve. And yeah. I, I'm I'm going to slightly disagree with you in that there is not a lot of creative freedom except you have to be creative if you're trying to take something in 2019 or 2017 and get it back to 1911, 1920. And so I think that's where the creativity of, of Ken and our the museum team really shined is that yes, they couldn't decide to you know, they couldn't really decide what color paint to it. use and things like that and yeah, and change the porch completely. But they had to figure <laughs> out, okay, this home had a cedar shank roof. How are we going to put a cedar roof on it that is appropriate for the time being? And I don't want to step on your toes, Ken, because no, I know you're... you'll talk about this later. But the amount of creativity required from these folks was incredible. So some baseline information. When did Nancy uh, no longer inhabit the house? She, uh, Christina would know more about that than I do, but she didn't stay in Great Falls very long. And her goal was to create a memorial to Charlie. And she wanted to transfer the properties to the city, I think, in oh. about 1930. It happened fairly early. Okay. And one thing you might want to keep in mind as you visit the studio is that uh, when Charlie died in 1926, the west wing was four logs high. It was not even completed mm. when he passed away. Um, but so it that creates a little bit of a dilemma in that. How do you uh, how do you leave it? Well, yeah. Tech, <laughs> Technically, you could say, well, there were only four logs up. <laughs> so we're taking some Take logs down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so that we can get it to the, to the uh, period of time of when, when he passed away. And, of course, nobody wants to do that. And, and so there were conversations back and forth with uh, Park Service and others and said, no, you're going you're gonna to treat it more like 1930, which we did. So after Nancy left this to the city in the 1930s, nobody lived there? Did you have renters? Did you have to deal with any of that? Um, it was pretty much occupied. And one of the, one of the things that uh, we did not delve into, but I think there's room to delve into, is some of the folks that occupied the house after 1930. That's been done. Yes, it was uh, just Suzanne done. Waring. Suzanne Waring. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I was going to say that. She wrote and, a book. Right. The Yeah, she did that presentation. Available my, for sale in the C.M. Russell Museum store. You know what else <laughs> should be available for the C.M. Russell or the C.M. Russell store? You should make the wallpaper into wrapping mm -hmm, paper. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be cool. There's uh, enough... <laughs> Enough <laughs> wallpaper remaining that you could probably do a version of that because the we'll do a print of the, it. The uh, the fellow that printed this wallpaper 
uh, ended up with a double order. I think there's a lot of wallpapers. <laughs> Am I correct? <laughs> we Christy? well, hey, if we're going to do it once, we wanted to make sure that if something happened, oh, yes. so it's not need, available like, for us to, to do a wall. This, well, we can make a deal. Ooh, ooh. Let's put let's that will be the feature wall. I don't, Christina, that will be the feature wall. I wow. But <laughs> I would quickly add, however, that let's talk about the cost per square foot of this wallpaper. <laughs> we have a partner yeah. that will donate their funds. The Russell will. No. <laughs> what one of the concerns with any wallpaper, whether it's reproduced or new, is will it color fade? In, oh. in fact, one of the things that we've cautioned the museum about is they, they should not have a lot of direct sunlight on the interior because these are strong colors. And for <laughs> they the, are. And for the listeners uh, who can't see this, <laughs> uh, the primary colors that, that we're looking at here, one is a very strong red, yes. one's a very strong green. Uh, kind of Christmassy, if you if it you will. It is, but also very timeless. Because if you were to walk into the Russell home today, you'd be like, eh, "I could live here. I could, I could." That's why I'm suggesting oh, yeah. mass produce it. I'm pretty sure anthropology will pick it up. Yeah, yeah. So, it's a great um, idea. 2014, this project starts. You do the reports. You figure out plan of attack. Uh, really, what? Well, the what first, was the plan of attack? Uh, we had to break it into phases of work. And the first plan of attack was to do a roof on the studio. Okay. Uh, the composition roofing on the studio was in close to being need to be to be replaced. It um, did not emulate or respect the original pattern. Oh. And one of the things about the studio roof that's a misconception is that a lot of people say that it originally had a wood shingle roof. This is just the studio, mind you. It never did have a wood shingle roof. The first roof, which was lowered, was uh, a board and batten roof, uh, sometimes called a scab roof. Okay. And then when they raised the studio in 1911... They put on the composition roof. Fun fact, does anyone know why they raised the studio ceiling roof? Yes. Well, you don't count, Ken. Because <laughs> of the smells? Uh, no. Too much? I'll give you a hint. It now People resides care. in Helena. I don't know. Um, just give it to us. Come on. Charlie accepted a commission from the Montana state government for a large, large, large painting oh. to be hung in the capital. capital. House of Representatives. Okay. Yes. So they <laughs> took the roof and raised they, it. They literally raised the roof. They raised it four um, logs. For anyone not watching, can't see us, I'm, I'm raising <laughs> the roof know, now. You don't want to watch it. Um, <laughs> there's a reason there's no camera today. They raised so, the roof and to get the to get artwork the, out. So the canvas could fit. Oh, oh my goodness. So if you go up and visit the studio, you can see. Yes, the. Um, by looking at how the logs were planed, you can see the height that it went up. The thing that happened with the studio, and it's a technical thing, but it <laughs> captures my imagination. The original logs on the original room were not 
shaved off on the ground. They were done in place. Now, there's a term for that. It's uh, when you square a log, in German, it's called Blockbau. Okay. And if you look at the logs around the original room, three sides are squared, but the outside is not. Um, and when you look on the inside, you can see chipper marks in the log where they planed off those huh. inside logs. And my speculation about that is that Charlie got in there and realized it's hard to hang a painting <laughs> on a log wall because of the roundness of the log. Yeah. And in fact, that's still true in the in the exhibit wing. It's hard to hang things in there. I think Charlie looked at that and said to the uh, builder, George Calvert, uh, come on, George, I need a flat wall. <laughs> and you, you can see where George went in actually sawed into those logs and then chipped it off with an axe. Huh. So when you go there, you count the logs up to where you see the saw marks. That was the original studio. And then the logs above that that were raised, that were elevated in 1911, don't have that technique. Hmm. The more I hear about Charlie, the more I believe a bar stool was thrown yep. through... The exalted ruler. That's not true. It's, it's Tom said it might be. Might be. Might. <laughs> I think that we have so much to talk about. We forgot to answer the question about the tenants since 1930. Oh, okay. We went to Suzanne Waring, did a presentation about the people that live there. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you were going to add to that? That people just rented it from no, the city? They should buy the book from the CM Russell Museum store. That oh, was it. that's what we're that's doing. That's how we finished. Oh, okay. yeah. no, well, okay, I'll, I'll, no, that's I'll give you a little that's more of a... I'll, Christina. I'll, I'll dangle a little more of a... a I don't know. Yeah. Carrot. Um, <laughs> carrot, thank you. <laughs> um, so, as, uh, as, as Ken mentioned, when Nancy moved to Pasadena, they had built a home in Pasadena before when Charlie was still living, and that was the plan, was they would... They have two homes. She decided to leave Great Falls, went there, sold, sold, quote unquote, sold the house and studio to the city with the instruction that there was a memorial to be built for Charlie. They decided that the studio and the what we call internally the gallery edition um, would become the memorial. And then they allowed the caretaker of the memorial to live in the house. Oh, so a variety of people lived in the house, um, notably the. Uh, grandson or son of Paris Gibson. He's kind of a big okay. name around town. <laughs> I've heard of him. Um, you might, their, might have too. <laughs> their family uh, were the caretakers for the uh, the Russell Memorial. Um, they kind of fell on some hard times and through a very roundabout series of events. That's one of the jobs they had and so they lived in the house for a period of time. Huh. And I believe... The caretaker and then the once the house and studio were transferred to the Trig C.M. Russell Foundation, which happened later, um, the curator for a time lived in the house. Legally it, or illegally? Legally. Okay. Yes. As, everyone as, lived there legally. Yes. Yes. We. I don't believe there have been squatters in the house, although I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there have. But um, we'll and it wasn't until I believe the 70s that it it became more of an exhibition and people no longer resided there. Okay. But I'll let Ken speak to that. 
the thing that happened in around 1970, 1969, 1970, um, was that the house was vacant and it was a drain on city finance to to uh, <laughs> take care of it. Mm-hmm. And there was a move uh, to demolish it. Oh, my goodness. Right, row. <laughs> and, and, and the individual that probably has the most history about that is John uh, Stevenson, okay. uh, the attorney. Um, his family was involved in the park board and, and the city and... Uh, John would be your go-to guy to fill in that blank. Uh, at any rate, it was controversial. Do we keep it? Do we not? Wow. Um, there was a concern that the house was too close to the studio. It was about 50 feet plus or minus closer to the studio. But the garden club, I think it was statewide garden club, uh, picked up the baton started a movement and said, no, we're going to save Charlie Russell's house. And they did. They, oh, wow. moved, they moved it. Uh, Scotty Zion, that's a name you may know, uh, did the moving. They moved it about 50 feet um, to the east. Allegedly, so, why? there was literally a wrecking ball parked next to this, the house. And for whatever reason, like there was a delay. With People the were purpose. chained to the house. Yeah. No, well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> and I don't know if that's accurate. I say allegedly because I, I didn't do the research on that. But I feel like I've read or seen somewhere that I think two different times the house was slated for demolition and was just sort of like a phoenix rose from the ashes and was saved. We're looking at time frame of the 70s, right? Yeah. So Western Art Week had already started or had... Just or like no, it was so it was the late sixties because Western Art Week has been along for fifty years. So no, I think the first Western the, Art Week was the late sixties. So it's we're we're right in right oh, in there. Wow, imagine that. Imagine oh. how that would have affected Western Art Week. So the, well, I mean, I wonder if it would have. You know, you can't butterfly effect. So the person you would want to. <laughs> You would want to interview about Western Art Week would be Norma Ashby. Um, we, we did. did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, one of the first thing uh, I was fairly new to Great Falls at that time. I moved here in '65, and in 1969-1970, I was one of the directors of the Montana Ghost Town Preservation Society. And one of the first articles I wrote for their quarterly newsletter was about the Russell House. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. So, why was it, why did it have to move 50 feet? Why did the house and the studio, was there some type of city code where they had to be so far apart? Can't be grandfathered in? I mean, they wanted a bigger flower garden? So dramatic. In today's world, you probably could have got an exception. The concern was fire. Oh, and there are things we don't know, never did find. Um, we know that Charlie had a corral behind the house for his horses. Okay. No evidence of that. There is no known photograph of what the back of the house looked like. Huh. We know there had to be a porch. We know there had to be a place where he stacked firewood, things like that that we we can't find or have not, no one has found to date. 
Huh. Well, and I always point out to people, so if you were to go to the museum today, the museum takes an entire, well, now it's actually over a square city block. But in Charlie's day, that was truly a neighborhood. So Charlie, they had neighbors on either side of them. There was an alley behind their house. There were houses on the other side of the alley. So it doesn't, it wouldn't have looked anything like it does today. There's, there would have been much, much less green space. It was a true city block, just like the rest of 4th Avenue North in Great Falls. So the house was like on one lot and the studio was on another lot, yeah. in theory. Mm-hmm. And then the corrals were in the back of the house and yeah. mm-hmm. his neighbors are like, yeah, there's Charlie with his horses. <laughs> well, there was a concern expressed by Charlie. I, I, Christine probably knows more about this than I do, but... Uh, at some point, he conversationally asked a neighbor, they really want to see a log house on this lot? He was concerned about that. He didn't like the studio when it was first completed. So when they first built the home, he uh, the front of the house has sort of a parlor area, and it's a unique double front door. So you walk in the outer door, and you can turn left and go into the parlor, or you can go straight and go more into the, the main house area, if you will. Um, and he would paint in that parlor. And then I think I, we jokingly always say, you know, Nancy got tired of his friends in the turpentine um, and kicked him out and said, you got to we got to build something for you. You got to get out of here. <laughs> and he wanted something in uh, the style of Jay Coover's cabin where he spent a few years when he first moved to Montana. And it was a kind of a rough hewn log cabin out in the Judith Basin. And so they you know, worked with Calvert and and built it and everything. And when it was built, Charlie was very worried about what the neighbors would think and and would people be upset by it and things. And the story is, I don't know, Ken, if you've heard the same story, but Albert Trigg, who lived two doors down, the Trigg family were very, very close to the Russells. Um, Nancy allegedly kind of said, Albert, would you help me out here? Charlie's really unsure of this can you just reassure him that his studio is okay like it's all right it's not a a blight on the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and albert did that he kind of walked with charlie into the studio and charlie was humming and saying i don't know about this i don't know maybe we should tear it down and albert said no charlie this is great it you know and he really encouraged him and sort of changed charlie's opinion and sort of made him feel like no it's okay it's an acceptable piece of the neighborhood although it's very different from all of the other homes yeah um it's okay yeah, I went through that. I painted my house last year, year before. It was yellow. <laughs> and it took a while to paint it because we did it ourselves. People stopped their cars. Like, they were taking pictures. Well, they you go painted there. it black. Black. So <laughs> we had people walking by just stopping and staring. But when we were finished with it, people would stop and say, we were worried at first. <laughs> but now you guys have a cool house. Like, we'd be walking our dogs and we'd have... Other people, like, we've been in this neighborhood for 40 years, and boy, were we not happy, but now we love it. And I'm like, okay. Because I was like, oh, no. I don't think our neighbors are going to like us. So Charlie Charlie and I are exactly the same. Yeah, I'm, I think you're on your road to the National Historic Register. So. Exactly. <laughs> Kindred spirits. So as we talk about the house, you were saying you knew there was a porch on there. So clearly when you started with this project, there was no porch. That's correct. In yeah. the back. The th- I, I want to back up just far okay. enough to say, because I think it should be in your, in your podcast, that the thing that is really important about the house and the studio is that we have 
that asset right here in Great Falls, and there are not many examples of that in the United States where you have the work of the artist and their studio in one place. Uh, you can go a number of places and look at Charlie Russell's art besides the museum, Russell Museum. But, you know, you can go to the Historical Society and uh, Helena and any other number of other venues, but there's no place else where you can go to see where the artist's home and his studio was. That's what's really important about having that here in Great Falls. True. So how did you come up with what you wanted to do on the back of the house if there were no pictures? We, as you will see when you visit it, uh, it's pretty much the same way it was when it was moved in 1970. Okay. So we did nothing. We preserved what was there, uh, knowing full well that it is not truly representative of uh, the time that Charlie lived there. I have and a there concern. are there are other there are other areas. The biggest question mark that was never totally resolved uh, was the layout of the kitchen. Oh, uh, will you talk about the stove? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you almost have to be there and walk through. But oh, the reason the to way come to it, Great Falls. the way it has been exhibited is that. It's got a large monarch or majestic range on the south wall, and it goes up what appears to be a flue that actually goes into the stairwell, and there's no place for a pipe to go. I mean, it's an exhibit at this point. The stove, we know, had to have been on the west wall, and you can tell that by the position of the chimney, and you can tell that there is a flue a thimble of a flue there on that wall. And there's almost no room between that chimney and the door going into the dining room. So it had to be a really tiny stove. Um, the other thing we knew is that the sink was in the southeast corner of the kitchen. And you can tell that by going down in the crawl space. And there's still some old lead plumbing pipes that we leave uh, for the historic record. And that tells you where the sink was. Hmm. And then you go up in the floor and you can see where the floor has been drilled out for water pipes. So what you're seeing is an exhibit, but we played with a number of ways of trying to configure a kitchen that looked historically accurate <laughs> and never did totally resolve it. And so um, future historians may find uh, the answer <laughs> to that question. That's the biggest change. Huh. Well, so the... Photography at the time, this is something that never occurred to me until someone explained it, but photography at the time required quite a bit of light. And so you didn't have a lot of interior photography. So we have a fair number of photos of the exterior of the house, the front predominantly. Um, but yeah, Ken was just showing me on his fingers four photographs of the inside of a house. Now, if you can imagine trying to oh my restore a home to its original condition, but you've only got four black and white, low light quality photographs. Oh, Ken, what a disaster. It, like, as I said, the creativity of these guys was incredible. So how did you, how did you know what the colors of the wallpaper were going to be? Because of what you peeled off? Science. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> we, we pretty carefully 
took all of the wallpaper off layer by layer. And I I have to interject at this point that the the gals from the garden club in 1970 finished the house so that it could be uh, presented. And I don't know how much guidance they had. I don't know how much budget they had. But I've always been extremely grateful that they did what they did. They didn't remove old things. Um, they resurfaced some of the surfaces. So I'm very complimentary about that. But when we got to the wallpaper, we carefully took it off a layer at a time, recorded it. And when he says a layer at a time, he's not exaggerating. I, what was the gentleman's name? The uh, Carlos, Carlos. Uh, Fernandez. Yes. Carlos had a, a decent-sized sponge. And he would wet an area, and I'm not exact. He had like an exacto knife. And if anyone's ever removed wallpaper, can you imagine sponge, 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 exacto knife, just a tiny bit, sponge, 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 exacto knife, just a tiny bit. Like it was incredible to watch because I was like, you are the most patient human being I have I would ever experienced. Ripping. You should be a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> oh man. Oh, but anyway, so the, I'm sorry I interrupted. <laughs> the, the summation of it was we found six layers of wallpaper in the living room, including the finished layer that the garden club left. And then in the foyer, we found uh, four layers. And in the dining room, we found three. Huh. And we recorded all of those and... Uh, Included in the work at the house, I had um, created my documents in such a fashion that we needed a conservator for the plaster. <laughs> and we got a really good conservator out of Boise, and his credentials included ornamental plaster, plaster, fresco painting, um, and other fine arts. In, in fact, uh, the thing that enticed him to come here was the fact that it was Charlie Russell's house. Oh, wow. Some name recognition. So, well, yeah, and he was, uh, he was very much aware of Charlie Russell. And one of the requests he had is that if he could go into the studio on a Sunday afternoon while he was here and do an oil painting— <laughs> that was part of his fee. <laughs> and did he? He did, indeed. Well, indeed, oh, he did. Is it on display wait, anywhere? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, no, sorry. No, I have it's... a burning question. What was the budget for the project? We mentioned, you know, you're not sure what the budget for the home and garden was to restore it or his fee. Who's footing the bill for this? Does it include creating the research report? How much money did it take? Was there grants involved? So, um... In total, I think the project was one point two million for four for four projects for for multiple projects. So we just yeah. we called it the Russell Home and Studio Restoration. Okay, that was sort of the project. And anytime and it had the four phases that Ken already mentioned. The four yeah. phases. Yep. And um, thankfully, they were phased. So we it wasn't like we were trying to raise all that money right now today. We were okay. able to you know, raise it over quite a few years, but the museum had to, yeah, we launched a campaign, which is kind of a normal, you know, a nonprofit thing. If you want to do something, <laughs> you got to find the money. So we launched a campaign. We had a number of donors come through, which was lovely. We applied for a number of grants. Um, 
and received grants from quite a few federal and state um, awesome government organizations, but then also private organizations. So it was a big, wow. long process. So the soil painting that's not on display. <laughs> oh, you'd have to call Greg to see that, I'm sure. <laughs> um, to add to your uh, description of cost, that did include a, f- a significant amount of interpretive. So, uh, oh, the okay. same, the same company and. I'm having a senior moment, but um, the same company that did the exhibits for the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center came back to Great Falls, and they did a lot of the interpretive work that you see in the house. Mm -hmm. And that also includes the interpretive lighting, uh, some specialized computer systems so that you... uh, if you're uh, handicapped, for instance, you can't go in the upstairs of the house. Um, in historic buildings, if you don't have access, you can do substitute things like a computer desk where they can sit down and do a virtual tour. Okay. okay. So the house does have virtual tour capabilities. So uh, when you talk about the total budget, it includes all of those things. Which is really cool. Yeah. So, um, tell me about the wallpaper, (laughs) because we've hinted around it. Um, You cataloged it. Um, Does that mean it exists all in a book somewhere, like at the Russell, or is it in your basement, or is it (laughs) filed away somewhere? Like, or did you just take a picture and note? Take took a note. Well, there's there's uh, two answers to that question. Number one. The Russell, hopefully, has an archives <laughs> box yes. that shows samples of things that we extracted. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Safely in our vault. So you have that, and we and we have a photographic record, and then finally. Well, don't uh, forget my great video work. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that, that should be in the archives box. Uh, but then there is a. Uh, included in the interpretation, there's one desk unit that shows the layers of wallpaper. So if you go in the living room, and, oh, it's and all look, there. It's all there. Yeah. Okay. And, and I would quickly add that just because we've done this work, the story probably isn't totally over. Uh, I can see. 20, 30, 40 years from now, somebody will find more information than we have, or they'll need to refresh the work that we did, and they're go- they're going to want a good record of what it is we did uh, then. Then, yeah. So why the wallpaper is so amazing to me and maybe other people is because how it was created. So you find the original wallpaper, you say okay, we're going to make it green and red. Or someone down the street's like, oh, yeah, I was there one time. It's green and red. (laughs) (laughs) How do you reproduce this wallpaper in today's age to be reflective of what it looked like when Charlie and Nancy lived there? Wow. Uh, In this case, we were never able to find any wallpaper exactly like the living room wallpaper. Um, There are a number of archives in the United States. Cooper Hewitt comes to mind. I don't know how many hours 
online I spent going through Cooper Hewitt's collection as well as others. Never did find the exact wallpaper ever. Wow. And the closest thing I ever came to it was uh, a French wallpaper company called Zuber, or maybe it's Swiss. <laughs> They're on the border there. Oldest wallpaper company in the world. I would recommend that you Google them. <laughs> follow the different threads. They have, I don't know how many old, old buildings full of prints and all that kind of thing. And the closest thing I found was a Zuber um, wallpaper. Hmm. But to recreate this, um, we had the samples. We knew the pattern. We knew the color, although the color was faded. So what I brought this this morning for you to look at is slightly richer than what we peeled off of the wall, uh, trying to compensate for age. And then you then you go to um, a specialty wallpaper company who will hand print this, literally. And this is an audio podcast, so I can't <laughs> I can't show you slides, but I do have um, a record of how that was done. Wow! So did you and get it, to go to the plant where it was made and supervise? Uh, did not go to the to the plant, but the fellow that did the plastering was one of the three bidders who wanted to do this, and he did the wallpaper. Oh. So he did the plaster and the wallpaper. He did the plaster and the wallpaper. And I need to digress a little bit and say we had a horrible time with the plaster in the house. It was <laughs> far worse than anyone could ever have imagined. And when I talk to people about the Russell Project, um, it's amazing to me there were places where the money, where it was just um, high-quality work, uh, the millwork in the, in the house is really rich. Uh, the windows uh, in the house were probably state-of-the-art in 1900, but the plaster was the kind of thing that you would put in your in a barn. Plaster's <laughs> done in typically in three coats. You do a scratch coat, a brown coat, and a finish coat. This was one coat plaster, and there were places where it was um, a quarter of an inch thick. Oh wow! On but of course it has wood lath, and then huh. the, and one other thing I would say for anyone who's working on an older home, um, wood lath and plaster aren't the best of friends. <laughs> they have <laughs> they have different rates of expansion and contraction, and there's a reason that they got away from wood lath and went to metal lath or or gyp rock or some other substrate for plaster. And when we got custom plaster up here, um, he took all of the walls and he drilled holes six inches on center both ways to stabilize that plaster. Oh, wow. And uh, he used... Um, a liquid adhesive that is thinner than water. It would bleed into the wood lath and the and the plaster, and then a immediately after that would bleed in. Uh, he would then put a permanent adhesive, which would follow the other wetting. He called it a wetting 
adhesive. Hmm. And so the, the house looked like a real disaster at one time in the process. We have some great we have some great photos of that. We can get to Mati to put in the show notes and stuff. But it it was incredible. And we um, in the museum. So Ken talked a little bit about interpretation. But um, one of the things that we found really interesting and that our curator at the time found really interesting was that you know they only they had a set budget for their house as anyone does when you're building. Um, it came from a small inheritance they received when Charlie's mother passed away, and. Nancy most likely was in charge of this project because that was just the role she had in their marriage. She was his business manager, so on and so forth. Um, she very intentionally seemed to spend in the areas people would see, the millwork, the windows. So when people walked into the home, they would think, oh, man, look at this house. It's incredible. But they didn't know that the only reason they had those beautiful windows is because she, for a, a contemporary term, cheaped out. Skimped on, on the the plaster potentially. So yeah. she, you know, they and or if you go upstairs to the second level of the home, it's much more simple than the downstairs area. So the the private area upstairs where guests and so forth wouldn't really go is much more modest. Whereas you had these downstairs areas, particularly that parlor I was talking about where Russell painted originally, the entryway, the dining room that they would use to show his paintings are all beautiful. Um, but the rest of the home, the private areas and things are, are much more modest. So when they built the house, Nancy very much had in her mind that the their home had to be their showpiece. But they couldn't afford the entire home to be the showpiece. And so they kind of skimped in certain areas to spend where it mattered, quote right. unquote, as far as Nancy was concerned. So that's just a really fascinating additional look into sort of Nancy's personality, maybe the relationship the two of them had, that sort of thing. Well, it goes a bit further. If, if you classify the house from the outside appearance, in my world, we call that a folk Victorian. And if you drive around Montana, um, residential areas in the communities, or even in rural Montana, you see a lot of folk Victorians. This house is actually about a seven-eighth scale of a typical folk Victorian. And the tip-off to that is... If you've ever climbed the stairs to the second level, they're much steeper than they ought to be. They're super steep. <laughs> up if to, you're taller up, than about 5'7", watch your head. Yeah. <laughs> up to the point that I had to en enjoin the cooperation of the local building inspection department at community development to let us keep those um, because they don't meet any kind of current code. Yeah. Uh, and, and which they did, I mean, recognizing the, the historic significance of the property. But if you imagine that house being slightly larger than it is, the stairs would have been um, more easily traversed, and the upper hallway would be a little less contorted on the north end. Hmm. And you're absolutely right. If you blindfolded a visitor, took him in the front of the house, then put the blindfold back on, drove around the block a couple times, and took them in the back of the house, they would not think it was the same house. No. It's very unitarian and very sparse, other than the three rooms where there were guests and customers. 
uh, and to add one more element to it is, even though it's a folk Victorian, when you go onto the first floor, the main three rooms, uh, again, it was pretty avant-garde because those rooms are what you would see in a craftsman bungalow house. And, and you know, that mm-hmm. came along and you see so many examples of those in uh, in Great Falls. And yet when you go in the back of the house and it's a typical Victorian farmhouse kind of a configuration. Yeah. So it's kind of fun to do that and and think about how they were thinking at the time. So for the floors in the house, were they in pretty good shape, just need to be refinished? Or did you have to go in and redesign and reconfigure and hand paint the floors? When we began the restoration, hoping to get to 1900, um, we realized at some point that the floors in the living room, foyer, and dining room were hardwood and had been added, and we don't know when they were added, but originally they were fir. So we had to make a decision. Do we rip out all of that beautiful oak and refinish the fir floors to get to 1900 or give Christine something to talk about when she gives tours? (laughs) And the tip off there, again, is if you raise one of the mechanical grills, you can see the two layers of floor, and you'll also notice there's a little slight threshold out of the dining room that shows where they overlaid the original fur floor. Uh, The upper floors were in poor condition, so as part of the contract documents, um, they had to be refinished. Okay. What is the floor in the kitchen? Is it wood or tile? It's fur. That stuff is soft. It's right. very it's very soft, yeah. In the kitchen, you're going to drop a pot or pan, and it's going to leave a mark. Just bounce. Uh, however, in the preservation world, sometimes that's called patina. <laughs> that's what my house has, is a lot of patina. There, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay, so we have the house and the studio, and it's a part of the museum now because the memorial wasn't big enough so you had to make a block museum for him but (laughs) i know you can see charlie's art elsewhere in the world but you should come to great falls and And see it here yourself um if you have any questions today about the show and want to see the pictures that christina is going to send me for the horrible plaster job that they had to fix um head over to warnodamexperts.com if you have any questions about coming to the best damn town in montana give us a call at 406-761-4400 Three six. We have loved having you on the show. It um, has been amazing. I'm. I forgot I was hosting. Um, but we're gonna have you back, and I'll pretend to not host again. So I, I, I could talk the remainder of the afternoon if you would like. <laughs> um, we're gonna we're gonna segment it. Not because I'm a good talker, but because there was a lot to be discovered at the Russell Holman Museum. Yeah, we can definitely part this out, and then you'll have to remember what you've already told us. We'll remember parts <laughs> of it, but we also want to talk about all the other projects that you've been involved in. Which, Madi, I don't know if you overheard, but... Windrag? What were you guys talking about? Yeah, we were talking about Old Glory again. This is the man who designed or engineered the pole that the flag sits on. What the... Truly the largest flag I've ever seen in my life. 
Yeah. It's 30 by 50. And do you know they lend it out? You I can borrow no it. You can idea. borrow it. I shouldn't say, okay, the, the largest flag I've ever seen flying in my life. Okay. I have seen the like football field flags, but they never fly those. This is the largest flown flag truly I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, they, the real credit for that project is Teeny Schmazo. Yep, we heard about uh, Teeny. Yeah, and Roy Volk was the builder that, that erected the flagpole. Anderson Steel furnished all of the steel. And the two big floodlights that light the flag at night were part of the six floodlights that, that lit the Anaconda stack over at ACM Hill. We had a good expert on. I, you know, I know Kim yeah. wasn't wasn't the founding teeny, <laughs> but Kim told us she's like, "Did you know the lights are part of the stack?" And I was, oh. Yeah. So she she didn't tell us Ken engineered the pole. No. So Kim, if you're listening, and she didn't know that American Legion will text you and let you know the status for the flag yeah. for that day. Anyway, in addition to that, the history has here. He also designed the base that the Lewis and Clark sculpture is on. Yeah. Well, Ken, we'll be seeing you again. <laughs> We're going to become fast friends, and you're going to be on the podcast a lot. <laughs> I, I, will, I will send the public relations part of my firm. <laughs> Talk to my agent. Well, again, thank you my for wife. your time today. Well, oh, have Ken and Ellen on. This will be fun. Okay. Okay, we've well, got a plan. I think maybe we should do it with video next time at the house or studio. Okay. So until we see your bright, smiling, happy face here in Great Falls, we hope you're creating amazing memories wherever you are and enjoying all of our episodes of We're No Damn Experts. And this is going to be airing on Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas. We hope you are having a blast and we can't wait to see you. And uh, bye-bye. Bye. We're No Damn Experts is the recorded claims from Great Falls, Montana covering what you need to know about this amazing damn town. Damn, that felt good. On the next episode of War No Damn Experts, Rebecca and Maddie finally get a peek into the birding community here in Great Falls, Montana. War No Damn Experts is produced by Great Falls, Montana Tourism with original music by the best damn musician, Joel Corda. 